0: Sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 13: A Look at the Catholic Church. Once again, we're taking a break from our chronological trip through the history of Italy to take a step back and look at one of the actors of that history, the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not going to go into great detail about doctrine and the global history of Christianity. What we're interested in is understanding how we came to have, in the year 774, with the fall of the Lombard Kingdom, this territorial entity that stretched from Rome up through central Italy to Ravenna and the surrounding area, the Papal States. For more detail, once again, I recommend the History of the Papacy podcast. Allow me to quote from Matthew sixteen eighteen. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but if we consider it is derived from the Latin Petra, from the Greek Petros, meaning stone or rock, we have a bit more sense of the building metaphor. According to John 1.42 also, in the New Testament, Jesus gave St. Peter, whose name was Simon, the name Kephas, or Cephas, meaning stone in Aramaic. Whatever language you say it in, the disciple Simon got a new name, Peter, from Jesus, and he became the first pope, a word meaning father. After the death of Jesus, Peter and his disciples travelled all around, taking the word all over the empire and beyond, helped with converts such as Paul of Tarsus. The Roman Empire had come into contact with a whole series of religions and had generally treated them with a certain tolerance, even absorbing some of their characteristics. But the emperor was not quite sure what to make of this religion, which was spreading like wildfire. The impact on people was quite considerable. They were greatly impressed by these disciples who promised a better life after death, and faced that death with the greatest tranquility. Going back to Peter, after a time as the first bishop, Of Antioch bishop meaning overseer or guardian he ended up in what was then the center of the known world Rome it was there that he was martyred so whatever the case would be in the future Rome would always be the resting place of the man whom Jesus had chosen to found his church so Christianity was spreading all over the Empire but not everyone was on the same page Even from the very start, for example, there were disagreements on whom the disciples should be reaching out to, if non-Jews should be included, with Paul pushing for the universal approach. As more and more people were converted, the differences increased, and so the Church assumed the term of Catholic, which means universal, because, well, it wasn't. We all know that intense debate and the struggle with divergent ideas would be a characteristic of the life of the Church for centuries, reaching dramatic levels of violence. Speaking of violence, that is mostly what the early Church met with from the Empire, with increasing persecution culminating in that of Diocletian in 303. This was the most severe persecution of Christians by a Roman emperor, but it was also the last. Not long after that, it was the pinnacle of the empire himself to apparently become a Christian when the emperor Constantine converted. Now, the whole debate about the sincerity of the conversion and the reasons behind it have been the object of in-depth study and debate, which we won't go into here. In any case, we know very well that he convened the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325. This dealt with various topics that were being debated in the Christian community. Arianism is one, for example, which we've spoken about. Also, since this is Easter week, happy Easter to everyone, by the way, it was at this council that the official calculation for the date of Easter was decided. Anyway, here we had an emperor who was getting involved in the organisation of the church, which showed that there was, at the time, no single leader of the church in opposition to the non-religious power. The situation went from good to better when, in 391, Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the religion of state. At this time, there was still not a universal head of the church. There were, however, certain sees which had greater importance over other areas. These in particular were Rome, Alexandria and Antioch, for example. Now that we've been around all that big scary empire, let me get back into the little comfortable peninsula of Italy. That feels a lot better. So, here we are in the fourth century. A crumbling empire surrounds us. The civil authorities are losing control, and guess who's there to step in? That's right, it was the church authorities. This control was adding to that already derived from the land and possessions. And these were also increasing. This was principally due to donations, particularly the donatio pro anima, the donations for the soul. Here's the deal. You're a wealthy person and you feel your time is coming or you want to get ahead of things. You want to make sure that when you pop your clogs, you're going to get in well with the big man upstairs. So you call for the closest priest or even better a bishop and dump all your stuff off on them. They start praying for absolutely ages for your soul and in you get. Now these donations were not just made by lesser wealthy men and not just when they were dying but the process went quite high up. We mentioned for example how King Desiderius of the Lombards had founded a monastery and made donations to various ecclesiastical entities. We'll get back to donations in a little bit. Let's get back now to the popes since that's where we want to get. We're going to look at a few now, who helped get things from a well-established and growing organisation into a state, and who also made one of the many positions in the church into the dominant position, the Pope of Rome. So, let's just go back a bit before the fall of the Roman Empire. You may remember from episode 1 that Attila the Hun had made his way into Italy with every intention of marching on Rome. However, he was stopped, not by a great army, not by a natural calamity or disease among his soldiers, but by a single man. That man was Pope Leo I. Now, stopping the scourge of God, however he may have done it, single-handedly, was quite enough to increase the prestige of the Bishop of Rome. However, he was also important on a theological level. Indeed, he wrote down in 451 the version of Christology, the nature of Christ, that is used to this day. He had a strong belief in the role of the Catholic Church to re-found Rome. Indeed, he stated that, after the founding by Romulus and Remus, the city had been re-founded by Peter and Paul. With the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Church of Rome became increasingly isolated, culminating in the schism from the Eastern Church that started in 484 and lasted until the Emperor Justin found a compromise in 518. By the time of Theodoric, the Ostrogoth king of Italy, Rome stood as the only Catholic faith in the known world, surrounded as it was by barbarian Arian Christian kingdoms and with the Eastern Church professing Meophysitism. This isolation did not last long. The year 508 saw a very important event for the Catholic faith and for the future of the papacy and Italy in general. It is in that year that King Clovis of the Franks was baptised and became a Catholic, in time making the whole Frankish people Catholic. Then, as we mentioned in 518, the schism was healed for the moment. The 6th century also saw an important development in the monasteries. Indeed, it is in this century that they saw the reform by St. Benedict. The monasteries had been increasing in wealth and power, but were quite relaxed places. Benedict fought against the corruption that was spreading, setting out the severe rules of his order. From that time, and through to the arrival of the Carolingians, the monasteries continued to develop greatly and perhaps most importantly, increasing their monopoly on culture, as the last of the civil classic culture had died out with the barbarian domination in Europe. At the end of the 6th century, and precisely in 590, we have another important papacy of Pope Gregory the Great. He was elected by the clergy and the Senate and the people of Rome, after Pope Pelagius II had died of plague, and he was the first pope to come from a monastery in history. It was he who sent St. Augustine to convert the ex-Roman province of Britannia. He was no pushover, showing that he could be a player player in international politics by resisting the attempts by the Patriarch of Byzantium, who wished to declare that seat as universal. However, he was not all power and politics. Pope Gregory had a genuine concern for the well-being of his people selling off church possessions to feed as many poor people as he could, and looking after the well-being of the citizens of Rome, in a period in which the Lombards were rampaging through Italy, with the Byzantines almost powerless to protect their people. He also reorganised the church lands, which were becoming quite considerable. By the year 600, the around 250 dioceses of the peninsula owned around half a million hectares of land, and if I've done my calculations right, that's around 2,000 square miles. Things progressed, as we have seen, in the episodes on the Lombards, with the popes becoming increasingly important players in the Italian political scene, and the hold of Byzantium slipping, that of the Lombards, ebbing and flowing, but gradually increasing, and the Franks continuing to gain power just over the border. We have seen that, With the new century, at the start of the 700s, we had a new rift with the East, with the iconoclast movement in the Byzantine Empire, starting around the year 726, and strongly opposed by the Pope at the time, Gregory II. This represented an almost definitive isolation of the Catholic Church from Eastern Christendom, and the Empire, which was its representative. At the same time, and specifically in 728, the donation of Sutri occurred, in which the Lombard king Liutprand, who had taken the possessions of what was then the Roman duchy, nominally a Byzantine possession, and then returned those lands, which included the strategic city of Sutri, not to the empire, but to Pope Gregory, thus marking a second great symbolic step, after the papacy of Gregory the Great, towards the papal state. The definitive step can be seen as the donation of Pepin or the Promisio Carciaca, the promise of Cassium in 754 in which the Frankish king Pepin promised and later in 756 delivered to the Holy See lands in Lazio, parts of Tuscany, parts of Umbria, the Marche, parts of Romagna and the island of Corsica, would you believe. This wasn't exactly what the Pope ...than Stephen II had actually asked for... ...but it was just enough for a starters. Now I say that it, it wasn't all of what the Pope had asked for... ...but on what basis was he asking to begin with? Well, that was where the donation of Constantine came into play. As Stephen II made his way up to meet Pepin... ...to convince the King to help the Pope by intervening... ...against the incumbent threat of Lombard invasion under King Aesulf, he carried with him a document. This document held proof of a very important donation that the Emperor Constantine had made to the Pope at the time. Just a reminder, this takes us back to the start of the 4th century AD, the then Pope Sylvester I. The donation was made out of gratitude for the Pope curing Constantine of a deadly illness, and included part of Veneto, almost all of Illigia Romagna, all of Tuscany and Umbria and the Marche and Lazio and half of Abruzzo, as well as the island of Corsica, quite a bit more than what they actually ended up with. There was just one little problem. It was a big fake. Constantine had indeed made donations to Pope Sylvester I, but he had donated the produce from around 30 olive groves, to make oil to light the 8,730 oil lamps of the series of buildings in Rome, collectively known as the Lateran. From a bunch of olive groves to a good part of Italy. Talk about getting an inch and taking a mile. We do not know if Pippin actually believed the fake, which was made up just around the time of the meeting. But it doesn't matter. For almost 700 years it was used as the basis for legitimacy for the papal states. Until, in 1442, the philologist Lorenzo Valla definitively demonstrated that it was indeed a false document, created around the time of the Donation of Pepin. The truth was also grudgingly admitted by the church authorities themselves, but by then, there was definitely no going back. So, there we are we have given a little background to the Papal States as they take their place as a major player, along with the Franks and what was left of the Byzantine Empire and the Lombards in the Italian politics. Next time, we'll be having a general recap of the first 300 years we have covered so far as we enter a new age of foreign domination and set the scene that made Italy so unique in the history of medieval Europe. As always, thank you very much for listening. Remember that if you have any comments, questions or philosophical doubts, you can write us via email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. You can click through to our social media, including Facebook and YouTube and look at some of the resources we have there. Once again, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And until next time, arrivederci.